Cats at Night. Now, here's John Katsimatidis. Now on the line with us, we have uh, Melissa DeRosa. She's a former secretary to former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, and she's also now writing for the Daily Beast. Correct, Melissa? That's correct. Nice to be back. Well, tell us, last night we had a, a, a debate that, that may help decide things, but, you know, they wouldn't let us carry it on WABC. They wanted to keep it just in a small spectrum of things. Mm. Literally spectrum. <laughs> Literally spectrum. <laughs> That's what he's over. Yeah, that, I, I think that was absolutely unfortunate, particularly given that, that, you know, we really only had two days' notice on the on the debate, right? They had been sort of playing this game of who was going to blink. And then finally, they moved forward with it just a couple of days ago. So it's not like it was highly publicized going in. And then it was limited, obviously, in viewership. I know that I have family across the state that were texting me saying, how do I watch the debate? Um, so to that point, I don't think it had much of an impact. I don't think that many people saw it. And I think that the only way it would have been a significant event in this campaign is if one of them really landed a punch or one of them really screwed up. And I think they both sort of got through without doing either of those things. And uh, and uh, so you thought there was no knockout punches last night? I didn't think there was a knockout punch. But, you know, the thing is, it's you know, I, when I used to do debate prep with my former boss, we just wanted to get through because we were always had these pretty monstrous leads going into the home stretch and you didn't want to do anything to interrupt that momentum. Now, in this situation, you you have the momentum has been with Zelda in these last couple of weeks. And so I would argue he didn't necessarily need the same thing to happen here to be helpful to him. Um, but, you know, on the same side for her, it would have been better, I think, had there been some breakthrough moment where she really landed a punch and was able to paint him as being wildly out of touch. And while I certainly don't agree with a lot of his policy positions, I'm not sure that she accomplished that either. So I think it was sort of a non-event. Do you think, uh, do you think uh, Zeldin has a shot at winning? So, you know, there's been a lot of talk about this, and obviously the polls have been the negative trend for Hochul has been coming into focus in the last two weeks. So, you know, I look at 2014 with the governor versus Astorino, which was a 14-point race, but then I look at 94, where it was Mario Cuomo versus Pataki. And Mario Cuomo versus Pataki, the way his path was that he won every county outside of New York City, with the exception of Albany County. And when you look at the num, and he got 27% in New York City, which is important. And he won Staten Island in New York City. So of New York City, he won Staten Island, he got 27%. So when you're looking at the numbers now, and you're sort of looking at the trend, the way that the polling is going, I think that there is a significant chance that Zeldin carries the suburbs, both Suffolk and Nassau. I think he carries Rockland and everything north of Rockland, except for Albany County, potentially Onondaga County. And then I think that she holds Erie County. I think, unfortunately for her, based on what I'm hearing about people's internals, I think Monroe County will likely go Republican this time, which isn't a crazy thing. That's where Rochester is. When we ran in 2014 against Astorino, Astorino actually won in Monroe County. So I think in order for him to win, he's got to replicate the Pataki model, with the exception being he can lose a, a little bit more upstate, a couple of those counties, so long as the overall vote total is there for him. So he can lose Erie County as long as he makes it up in one of the other counties or a couple of the other counties combined if there's big Republican enthusiasm. 
And then, and this is a big caveat, if he breaks that magic, you know, 30 to 33 percent barrier in New York City. And the way that happens is if black and brown voters are not motivated and stay home and then he gets a big turnout in Staten Island, maybe the Bronx, maybe in some of the the areas in Queens um, that are still more of, you know, the old school New York City neighborhoods that I think of, you know, the Italian neighborhoods, those neighborhoods. So, you know, lightning would have to strike, but there is a path. I still think it's hers. I still think it's hers to lose. Um, but, you know, when you when you look at 94 and you look at 2014 and you're looking at the current polls, I can see why they would be hopeful. But I still think it's a big reach. Melissa, this is David Patterson, who's well aware that he owes you a phone call. So if you forgive me for that, <laughs> I want to ask you this question. Do you think that after the primary in June and the primary in August, where the pro-choice candidates were winning, people were very upset over the Roe v. Wade decision, that there was sort of a sense that as long as you talked about that and you were a Democrat, you had a good chance to win, and that creeping up from behind and then inevitably becoming the main issue of the campaign was crime. Oh, undoubtedly, Governor. I mean, you know, there's sort of been three three different trimesters to this campaign. There was the pre-Dobbs decision where it really looked like Republicans were going to swamp things. Then the Supreme Court decision leaks and subsequently comes out. And then it felt like it was shifting much more to the Democrats. And, you know, there were affirmative signs for them. We had the Kansas vote, um, which was very, very big. And you saw the upstate New York state special election. It really felt like the abortion issue was resonating. But as we creeped further into the fall and crime really became the top issue, along with the economy and inflation, it was very clear to anyone who was paying attention that the pendulum was swinging back. And I think, unfortunately, Governor, for our party, Democrats are afraid of the crime issue. I think it has to do with Willie Horton. I think it has to do with, you know, some of the residual negatives of the 94 crime bill. Um, But for whatever reason, it's like we're afraid to say that certain people need to be in jail for society to be safe. And we're afraid to say that you can be both progressive on criminal justice. Melissa, why? Why are they afraid to say it? The black and brown kids are dying by the dozens. No, and, and, you know, I think that there is a private acknowledgement of it. But I, I do think that. After 94, when, you know, Clinton, who, by the way, owned the crime issue, did the crime bill. But then there was the negative impact of mass incarceration that, you know, our party hasn't figured out how to talk about this issue and how to govern on this issue, which is that you can say that there should be clemency and second chances and alternatives to incarceration when the situation allows and when it's appropriate, while at the same time, being tough on crime. But that is such a great point, Melissa. It's got to be more than just getting guns off the streets because there's so many other ways that people commit crimes, particularly in the subway. And that's what and that's exactly what Zeldin said last night to her. It's not all about gun control. And that was a very important point. I have a girlfriend who's, you know, 44 years old, five foot eight, blonde, petite. She was standing on the corner of 21st and 6th Avenue last week at 1.15 in the afternoon waiting to cross the street. And someone walked up to her and punched her in the face. Holy cow. So, and so this is, you know, when you see the recurring wow. videos of people pushing people onto subway tracks and you continue to read about the stories. And the thing is, it's like because of Democrats fear, and I wrote about this in my column this week, to sort of grab hold of this issue. And number one, 
empathize with people and say, I hear you. I understand you're afraid. And by the way, that fear is well-founded and I get it. And here's what I'm doing to fix it. Rather than doing that, oftentimes Democratic politicians in this environment are sort of ducking and hoping to run out the clock. And unfortunately for for the Democratic Party, it doesn't feel like that's happening. Again, I still believe Hope is going to win this election, but I do think that Democrats, not just her, but across the country, sort of underestimated yeah, the crime issue. Melissa, the I got to say, we're going to be taking a break in about a minute, but I have to say, uh, the Hispanic community is mad as heck at what's going on with all, all the crime. The Asian community is mad as heck. Uh, the the black community and you know I'm from Harlem. They're mad as heck, and I you know and I don't know where these people uh, say that they're going to get uh, that much out of uh, New York because those people are really mad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I understand, and again, I think that that feeling is deep and wide right now. People are very frustrated, so we'll see how that plays out, either by voting against the party you traditionally vote for or by staying home. Melissa DeRosa, we have a minute left. I wanted to ask you, less than a minute left, what advice would you give Lee Zeldin? I guess I could ask you also about uh, (laughs) Kathy Hochul. What advice? (laughs) Well, I'm not in the business of advising Lee Zeldin, but if I were to say anything to Kathy Hochul, I think that she needs to be spending the next two weeks in New York City and Westchester and the suburbs. And she needs to be laser focused on that field operation because this is going to come down to turnout. Melissa DeRosa, thank you for everything you've done for our, our state and continue to talk about it. Thank you. God bless you. It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network.